calling all denizens of the dark, mavens of mayhem, and champions of chaos. Lock your doors and listen close. It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. I'm Terrence McCauley, and this is Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on my website at www.terrencemcculey.com. My guest with me today is known by several names, and he's worn many hats in his life. He's known as Frank Zafiro and Frank Scalise. He's my featured guest today. He's a writer who, um, in addition to being an acclaimed writer of fiction, He's also been a soldier, a police officer, a SWAT commander, and a teacher. He is the co-author of the River City series, the Charlie 316 series, and he's a noted contributor to several fiction anthologies. Welcome to the show, Frank. Hey, thanks for having me. Why don't you, uh, I gave you a very brief introduction. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, and then we'll get into the core of what you write. Well, I think you did a great job there. You hit on everything. Um, the only small correction I'd make is that um, River City series is is a series I write on my own. Uh, it was actually the first book I ever wrote was the, the first book in that series, Under a Raging Moon. But you can be forgiven because I've co-authored about 15 books. So it's I know easy that. To, <laughs> it's easy to, to uh, wonder which are which. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I have a whole lot to add. I mean, uh, when I was in the military, I was a Czech linguist, so that, that might interest some people. Technically I, I was a spy, but don't get excited. <laughs> if you hear that, uh, basically meant, uh, sitting at a radio position with headphones on scanning frequencies and trying to, to catch the Czechoslovak army chatting about things in the clear that they shouldn't be, uh, now, all of which... Go ahead about that, because I want to ask no, you about no, your language proficiency, too, about how did you, did you know Czech already uh, by the time you did that, or did they teach you? Uh, well, I knew it pretty well by the time I sat down at a radio position, but that is because the Army taught, taught me, um, as is the Army way. We will teach you everything we want you to know is kind of something we... We heard often, but I got to spend a year, actually 15 months at uh, the Presidio of Monterey uh, in, wow. in Northern California, beautiful city. Um, it, it wasn't quite like going to college, but it was the closest thing you'll ever experience while in the military uh, mm-hmm. to going to college. Uh, 47 weeks of Czech and eight weeks of Slovak add on with a couple, couple of weeks here and there of leave that they granted us. And, wow. uh, it was, it was good. It was good. They, they rate you at the end. They, the way they tested language at the time was on a five point scale. And, um, like one would be a really good tourist level understanding of the language and five would be, you know, William F. Buckley or, or, or you know, <laughs> some of our more, our more, uh, eloquent presidents or, or something like that, you know, real command of the language. Right. Uh, a, th- a three is the equivalent of a, uh, high school graduate native speaker mm. and that was that was what we all shot for in reading speaking and and comprehending and uh i managed to do it at the end of of the course um i don't i, I don't think it it stayed at that level it's a language is a very perishable skill 
Right. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably down at a one now. <laughs> if I were to go, go, to, go to Prague for a visit or something like that, it might come back a little quicker than I think, depending on how long I'm there. But uh, Right, uh, yeah. It was, it was cool. I'm, I'm always interested with people who learn languages quick, and especially when they haven't grown up speaking them, because I try to take language in high school and uh, Spanish in high school and college, and I failed. And then I decided to take it easy on myself and majored in, and uh, minored in Latin. And believe it or not, <laughs> that one I learned and I was perfectly, I could translate anything uh, by the time I graduated. And then about a month afterwards, I lost it all. So I understand how that can happen. How did your uh, military experience help uh, drive you towards a career in law enforcement and a varied one at that? Uh, you know, there are some similarities between the Army and, and most law enforcement agencies. Uh, certainly, there's a rank structure in both. Uh, those, those ranks sometimes have roles attached to them pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. um, so, so understanding hierarchy and understanding uh, the, the necessity to follow orders, but also the uh, especially in police work, you know, having the, the the free thinking mind attached to that, so that you're not just blindly following orders, but you you understand that in a crisis, you know, time matters, and so sometimes, you know, a, a trusted leader gives an order, you follow it immediately. Right. Uh, that kind of that kind of thing translated. Certainly, the idea of service uh, to the country, to the community, that definitely translated over. Um, a lot didn't, you know, I mean, police officers are far more autonomous than your average soldier was, right. at least in my time. And, and so that didn't entirely translate. And the mission is different. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe one of the downfalls of policing, modern policing, is that perhaps we've identified a little too closely with the military model of mission and, and being at war and, and so forth. And I think maybe a, a little more of a community centric model might be more effective. Um, but I do think a military background is, is always was helpful when, when a new recruit came in and had that experience. Yeah, it seems to me, and I've never been a police officer nor have I served in the military, but it also seems to me that it would be valuable to be able to have a certain sense of focus and uh, uh, not allow mission creep to come in and cloud your judgment over what you're basically trying to do, which is serve the community. And being part of a team is another thing, um, you know, that, that, that helps a lot. Uh, you do have a lot of autonomy as a police officer. You do do a lot of things on your own, uh, but many things, particularly the more dangerous things or the more labor intensive things require more than one person. And, right. you know, you need to be able to look to the left and right of you and, and not only trust those men and women, but be able to work well with them uh, to accomplish whatever goal you're trying to accomplish. And so, um, you know, being in the army taught me, I mean, I came from a, you know, Spokane, Washington, which was in the mid nineties percentage of, of white people, you know, I mean, we mm -hmm. had one black, one black kid who went to our school in Deer Park, which is north of Spokane, small town. So my experience, multi multicultural experience, if you will, was was limited to media, you know, to music and television and so forth. Right. And being in the military is a completely different experience because people came from everywhere. They came from, you know, protectorates and 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 uh, you know, 
possessions of the United States, like the Virgin Islands and, and right. you know, like this. Uh, and from every corner of the country, I met people from Louisiana and Brooklyn, you know, and, and everywhere mm -hmm. in between. And, and that was a real education as well. Uh, learning, you know, how people are the same and how they're different and how to work through those differences. Uh, you, you learn, I don't have to like someone to function well as a teammate with them. And that's something that, that occurred in police work as well. You know, the, 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 the needs of the community, the, the needs of your mutual safety, you know, override any sort of personal disagreement you might have or whatever. Uh, we are always fond of saying you don't have to barbecue together, but you do have to work together. So exactly right. Exactly right. Um, now, based on your experience and your varied experience in uh, law enforcement, what aspects of, of your career have you placed in each of your series that you've written? Has well, there been one I'll... focus or have you tried to, miss, uh, you know, to try to spread it around a little bit? Uh, you know, that that's really there's really two different pieces to that question that I want to touch on because I think they're both really important. It's a great question on a, on a practical level, I guess um, I, I haven't drawn too many one for one sort of uh, uh, events in real life to an event in a book. Uh, I've tried to avoid that uh, as much as possible. Just, it, it just seems uh I don't know, it just seems dangerous to me, mm -hmm. but I, I have definitely, I mean, there's been a few, I don't get me wrong, but, um, but I definitely have drawn on the, the, the feel of the job, the texture, the color, the flavor, the smell, all of these pieces. Um, and even when I've lifted a, an actual, you know, person's phrase or an idiosyncrasy or a, a situation, it's been in mm -hmm. small pieces and it's been kind of a mix and match sort of thing. I mean, very very few places could someone come up to me and and say that was me or that was this time or whatever and be correct uh, doesn't stop them from saying it sometimes but right but uh, uh you know it's not always that easy you draw from the totality of your experience and then you you granulize it and mix it together and then put it back out and it's its sure. own thing uh, but the other piece to it is I did I did sort of have a goal with the River City series in particular, which is a police procedural series with uh, an ensemble cast of characters. Although I would say that uh, Officer, now Detective Katie McLeod, is is the core of the series. Mm -hmm. And and I wanted to show in these books, you know, the the humanity of these cops. I wanted people to not see a badge or a gun or a uniform you know, a stereotype, a trope, you know, like right. they may have seen on some TV shows or other other books at times and see how there's a person behind that. And that person has, is, is, is reflects you. It's, you know, you could be that person. Um, and, and if not, then you could at least understand or, or know that person. And uh, to get past that barrier of of all of the symbology of the of, and, and, and mythology of of the, the police profession, um, mm -hmm. and so to so to that end, I knew I didn't want to have you know a, a troop full of of Dudley Do Rights, you know, um, right, you know, infallible heroes because people can't you know can't identify with that. A, a hero has to have flaws and be human to be. Uh, you know, someone that 
people can identify with. And so right. I, I, I made, made, made sure I didn't make these folks infallible. I explored their faults. Um, they, the, the, the creed that I went by for a long time and, and, and I suppose still do is that the, the good guys usually win, but not always and never without a cost. And so right. uh, even when they win, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, to use a hockey analogy, it's not a seven zero blowout. It's a three, two squeaker and, right. you know, uh, it's a playoff win and sometimes they lose. In fact, the right. second book in the series is called heroes often fail. So, you know, mm -hmm. somebody's going to lose somewhere somehow <laughs> in that book, right. With a, with a title like that. Right. Uh, and, but that was a goal was to, to, to do that, to write it in a way uh, that that brought out the humanity officers because I was, you know, starting this first draft of the first book just two years on the job. And, right. Oh wow. And okay. Was, and it, I mean, it was finally published. I was midway through my career by then, but mm -hmm. I I was already experiencing that. People look up, they see me, they see, a, they see a cop. You know, I was mm -hmm. Frank the cop to the people that knew me. I was some cop to people who just saw me walk up in uniform, and though that brought about judgments you know maybe you think cops are great maybe you want to be a cop maybe your dad was a cop your mom was a cop your sister brother you right. love cops now you love me or maybe right. you hate cops and same thing but right. none of it had to do with me or anything that i was doing at the moment or was about to do and that was an interesting experience because while i think everybody experiences that and i certainly had in the past as well it's far more pronounced when you are in a position that has symbolic uh, uh weight to it i mean a, right. do a doctor's the same way uh, a priest or or you know mm -hmm. pastor you know these these professions that have an institutional weight to them right kind of make that happen so right i wanted to and try to get past that yeah, no, I, I and, and that's very clear in a lot of your writing. I spent 25 years in state, New York state government. So uh, I was never, like I said, I was never a cop. I never served in the military, but I do know what it's like dealing with the public, especially mm -hmm. in a public transportation agency and how mm -hmm. they react to you differently. And especially when things are tough, like during fare hikes in my instance or service reductions, they come at you full bore. And, um, you know, I, sometimes physically, sometimes a lot, most times verbally, and it's it's a valuable skill to be able to separate yourself from what you're doing for a living. And in your case, you can't do that because you're in uniform and you're living that every single day when you're a police officer. Uh, part of your experience that I found fascinating was that, yes, you were a SWAT officer and a SWAT commander, but a lot of that, you, you don't have, um, you don't allow that to dominate your books and I'm and, and the fact that you mentioned that you, you dwell on the characters is uh, is a tough choice for somebody with your kind of background. The one that I admire you for. Well, I I try to keep perspective. I mean, I I did a lot of things as a patrol officer and and a few as a detective, but a lot of my coolest experiences, if you will, came as I moved into leadership roles. And, and when I became the commander of the SWAT team, I was not a SWAT operator. I did not have that experience. And so imagine if you're an elite performer who has spent hours and hours and hours perfecting your craft, and then some Yahoo comes in who's never done that job, and now he's your boss. Right. Um, you know, I mean, that can breed some resentment, and, and it can also 
if if you as the boss come walking into that, hey, I'm the lieutenant, I know better because I took a civil service test and some people on an assessment board liked me and, uh, more than someone else. And so now I'm the boss. See this bar, you know, uh, see the gold, do what you're told. You know, this kind of an attitude is not going to, I mean, you'll get, you, you have legitimate power, so you'll get compliance, but right. you won't get engagement. You won't get people who truly, uh, you know, internalize the, the mission and the goal. And it was something like SWAT or, or one of my other favorite assignments was as the canine unit commander, same thing. Mm -hmm. I was never a canine officer. So in both of those instances, I, I, I knew I had to come in with a degree of humility. Right. And, 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 and a pretty high degree of it, to be honest with you. And so in both cases, I came in and I said straight out to the, to the teams, Hey, I never did your job. I have a basic outsiders understanding of it i want to learn enough about your job and what you do so that i can understand how you're going to perform and what i need what decisions i need to make while we're implementing this in a live environment and also so i know what your needs are on an administrative side and i can articulate those to my bosses if you know mm -hmm. you have five patrol dogs and I'm asking them to spend $15,000 on a new dog and we have five healthy dogs that are doing fine. What, how do I justify that to the captain? Right. He doesn't think that's justifiable, but they taught me why you've got to plan ahead and how, you know, on the dog's lifespan and the training cycle and all the other things, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and the pleasant byproduct of all that is that, that that's knowledge I gained that now when I write about it, I can write about it with a little bit of authority. Now I can't write about it from the perspective of having held an MP5 and gone through a door in a stick on the SWAT right. team or having tracked somebody with my dog because I didn't do either of those things. Uh, right. But I was closer to it than the average cop was. And, and so that's helped a lot. Um, but you know, all of the shiny, cool aspects of policing that you can work into your stories, are, uh, they're great. And, and I like playing with them as much as the readers like uh, hearing about them. But at the end of the day, I think it's the characters that matter. It's the characters right. that keep people coming back. And the comments, I, I suspect you experience the same thing. The, the majority of comments you get from readers center around you know, I liked this character, I hated that character, whatever, what's going to happen right. with so-and-so, are you bringing back this person, all those kind of questions. It's usually not about, oh man, that SWAT entry was so cool, or, you know, the, the way that dog caught that guy in the tire factory was awesome, you know, I right. mean, it, it was, but what, what, what really resonates with them is the character. It always does. Yeah, because that's ultimately what's relatable, because most people aren't police officers, they haven't been in intelligence, and they, uh, they haven't kicked down a door. And that's, I, I did the same thing when I was researching for my university series. I was never in intelligence, but I watched a lot of documentaries where they interviewed people who were, and mm -hmm. I studied their character, and I studied how they answered questions and what they said and what they didn't say. And that's how I was able to come up with that series. When I first met you, we were at the, uh, we were at BoucherCon in Tampa, and that's going to be coming up in uh, Minneapolis, I believe, in a couple of weeks. And the funny thing is, yeah, a couple of days, yeah. And I thought that uh, the first time I saw you, you were talking to uh, Dana King, God help you. I've, mm -hmm. I've talked to Dana a bunch of times, and he, uh, <laughs> he loved, I thought you knew him forever. 
And you had just met him literally five minutes before I showed up. And that's, <laughs> that's um, true. Yeah. And then we wound up all going to dinner together and it was, it was great, but that's the kind of um, being able to relate to people is something that writers in particular have sometimes a tough time doing. Um, but you seem to be able to do it very well. Was that something that you think that you got when you uh, were in the army and, and learned how to do it through your intelligence background? Or was it more along the police um, aspect of seeing people at their best and at their worst? Uh, well, I think there's a degree of it that's just a natural trait. I think every personality has its own uh, you know, shades and, and nuances and, and we're good at certain things and we're not as good at other things. And, mm -hmm. and I think, I, I think that is, is a thing that maybe I'm more naturally, uh, attuned to, but certainly the military helped and the police work was the big thing. Um, right. you deal with such a wide range of people and look, when you're, especially when you're in patrol, you are either dealing with a very bad person doing a very bad thing or you're dealing with a good person who made the biggest mistake of their life or you're dealing with a good person who just had the worst day of their life right you know as, as a victim um and so these are as you said not people at their best or in their best moments and how people behave in those moments while i think you can draw some you know some thoughts about their their, their character at the same time, they, they, they're not behaving at the baseline level. They're, you know, they're at the extreme end of the bell curve because right. they're under stress. And, and some people deal with that differently. And, and some people don't deal with it as often. Mm. And you, you just kind of learn to try to relate to people on a human level. And, and strangely enough, uh, you know, a lot of the cops I've talked to, and this is certainly the case in, in my experience as well, you develop odd relationships with the criminals too. I mean, the, the ones who, who are uh, honest about their criminality are actually some of the easiest ones to interact with. Uh, it becomes almost, it, it almost becomes in some cases like that old cartoon with the wily e. coyote and the, and the sheepdog, you know, where they punch the <laughs> clock. And I, how you doing Ralph? Pretty good, Fred. How are you? How's the wife and kids? And then, you know, he grabs him by the throat and starts punching him because he's trying to get the sheep. <laughs> uh, you know, it really, it really, that, that did happen a few times, that kind of thing. Uh, right. But it's helpful to have that ability though, because that's really what, you know, uh, what you're doing when you're writing a character, right? You're getting inside the skin of that character. You're projecting what you think that character might go through. And it, it can't just be, you know, an avatar for you every time. I mean, maybe right. occasionally you can get away with that, but you have to be able to project and wonder how would she feel? How would he feel? How would they feel? And mm. understand, you know, what the reaction might be and, and, and all of that. And, and I mean, it's a fortunate thing for me that Katie McLeod became the centerpiece of the River City series by the third book, because then I was writing, a, you know, a female character uh, as, as one of my major characters. And that really helped me understand that, you know, much is the same, but there are key differences and, and being honest about those and exploring those, you know, is, is somewhat what, uh, you know, makes the character memorable. Right. Um, and, and also too, uh, since you've been a published author and you've gone to a lot of the conventions, um, I was wondering, have you used any of those interactions, any of those experiences that you've met with, uh, as you've met with your audience 
and as you met with fellow creators. Um, how has that helped shape your craft in any way? I think the biggest thing it's done, honestly, has been that it it's invigorating. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we like to say writing is lonely business. And in one way it is, you're by yourself. I mean, it, but if you're crazy, like most of us are, then you're really not by yourself because you're with all the characters. <laughs> you're right. But, but flesh and blood people that you can actually reach out and, and, and touch, um, you're not around them as much. And so those connections with other writers uh, are, are pretty important. They're invigorating. And when you go to a, a conference where there's all these other writers and then readers too, that, you know, you can actually, especially if you're not a big time writer, if you're someone like me, who's a, who's a, a, a not a top tier guy, and then you run into someone who you either meet and then they become a fan or even more marvelously, they're already a fan and they tell you that and they've read this and they've read that and everything. It's, um, it's, it's one of those, it's satisfying. It, it, it's like, mm. okay, I, I'm writing to make a connection and here's a connection I didn't know about and it's right here in front of me now. And that's, that's a truly wonderful thing. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's what happens with the other writers too. You, you encourage each other, you, you uh, commiserate. Uh, and, and so there's a fellowship there that can be very sustaining uh, mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the year. I mean, I generally go to Left Coast Crime in the spring and right. voucher con in the fall. Uh, that's kind of an, uh, how I limit it at the moment, just because mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, for financial reasons, I'm out on right. West Coast. So traveling back East is expensive. Um, right. Yeah, because Pe uh, Penguin is not paying for us to go to these things. Yeah, <laughs> no. Exactly right. Yeah. No, no. Uh, so, but that that tends to be, uh, you know, enough. I mean, uh, I did go to the Public Safety Writers Association conference for the first time this year in July, mm -hmm. and and that was really enjoyable. Much smaller conference, so uh, even more of that one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction with with other writers. But I like Left Coast and VoucherCon especially because they're reader-centric conferences. And, right. and that and that's really really cool to to talk to readers and and you know hear hear their perspective on things uh, because right. we we often think we know best but uh, at the end of the day the person you know picking up your book and cracking open the pages they they know best right we've only got a few minutes left and i wanted to touch on the fact that you are in addition to being a prolific singles writer you've also co-written an awful lot with some pretty impressive people if you could just spend a couple of minutes letting us know how that differs from you writing on your own and how you enjoy co-writing because um that's always a, an interest with the audience as well it actually ties in really nicely to your previous question because when you write with another author it, it is invigorating. It is in, it constantly encouraging. And it brings out the best in you because, uh, you know, you want to do your best because, you know, you don't want to let down your partner. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's not just in the quality of the work, but also in the turnaround time, you know, things don't tend to languish waiting for your attention. Um, and so I've been very fortunate. I mean, I, I wrote three books with Eric Beatner, who's got the cleanest first draft I've ever read in, in crime fiction. Great, <laughs> yes, great guy. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful guy. I love him. Um, I wrote uh, three. Too. Yeah. Yeah. We wrote the bricks and cam jobs uh, series, which is a couple of competing hitmen that uh, each of us wrote one of the characters. And, and that was fun. I wrote three different books with Lawrence Kelter, 
another great guy, another great experience. And he helped me transition from what was my standard uh, dual first person narrative with alternating chapters approach to co-writing, if that makes nice. sense, okay. to, uh, to, to writing more of the standard, you know, third person limited uh, approach. And that is uh, uh, what I ended up doing when Colin Conway uh, came calling to work on the Charlie 316 series. Um, along the way, before that, I worked with Jim Wilski on the Anya series, which is uh, four books, three books and a prequel, uh, uh, hard-boiled with the femme fatale, and, and, and it's, right. it's pretty, fun, pretty fun stuff. But again, that two characters back and forth sort of thing. But with a couple of the books I wrote with Larry and then the, the Charlie 316 series, which is a police procedural series with Colin, uh, it's all in the third person. And, and it's kind of cool because but by the time we got to the end of the writing process, we both edited everything so heavily. Like it was, there are no sacred cows. You edit as if the whole thing is your own. Right. That, that if I didn't already know that I wrote these chapters with this character um, and Colin wrote those, um, you, you know, it'd be hard to tell because it's no longer in my voice or in his voice. It's a third voice, its own voice, uh, its own style. And, uh, and because in some of the books, he wrote one character but in another book i wrote that character it's even harder to remember like i pick up one i'm like did i write the chief in this one or did he write the chief in this way and right. that tells me we did a good job editing because you know otherwise it would be more distinctive um, mm -hmm. so it's really invigorating it's great and and some of my best work is is in those collaborations for that reason um, and it's helped you know help me write an extra 15 books that's great that is great. We've only got about three minutes left. So I was wondering if you had, what are your uh, next uh, big books coming out? Uh, I've got two coming out here in the next month or so. Uh, on September 20th, the eighth, uh, or correction, the 11th River City novel, The Worst Kind of Truth will be out. And this is a, uh, a police procedural with Detective Katie McLeod working on a couple of uh, sexual assault cases. Mm -hmm. For anyone worried about that type of subject matter, none of the actual assaults happen on the page. So uh, if that's a, a roadblock for you, it isn't, isn't one. Um, and then in October, October 11th, I've got the fourth Spokompton novel coming out. Okay. Uh, that's called Live and Die This Way. Um, my, on my website, it says that I'm a gritty, that I write gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. Well, mm -hmm. River City is the police side of the badge. Spokompton is the underside of the badge. That's where everything is from the criminal standpoint. And this okay. one is about a pint-sized burglar who's trying to stay above water and take care of her junkie brother and, and, and just get by. And then she sees something she shouldn't and, and things happen from there. I'll, leave, uh, I'll let the rest uh, be discovered when you pick up the book. Now, what would you, uh, you just mentioned your website. Why don't you let us know how people can find you and what the URL is for your website? Uh, you can find me at uh, frankzafiro.com. That's F-R-A-N-K-Z-A-F-I-R-O. And of course, on Amazon, I have an author page. I have a newsletter, um, you know, uh, pretty easy to find. Uh, if you go, it's not a common name. So if you Google me, uh, it'll all come up. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I do encourage everybody to Google you and to find you on Amazon, because if this guy is capable of writing a bad book, I haven't seen him do it yet. 
Um, Frank, I want to thank you for being here and thank you for sharing some of your insights and your creativity and your past with our audience. And um, until next time, I'm Terrence McCauley. This is Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. See you next time. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.